Energy intro is right. Here we go. It's hey got to be the staple. Welcome to Vegas and NAB and talking about video and our worst microphone setup ever. We're crammed into a hotel room here with Chris and Jordan, who you've met both of them on previous episodes. Hey guys. Yeah, I feel welcome. You know, Vegas is that type of place, very homey, very uh, loving. <laughs> You know, Vegas is where I'd be like, yeah, of course we'll sit on the floor with disconnected <laughs> microphones where we can't make eye contact. That makes perfect sense. I'm <laughs> sure the quali- nobody will notice the quality. Nobody notices production quality, right? No, nobody. But we're here in Vegas to talk about production quality. We warned you this was going to be a video episode, and we meant it. So uh, hopefully that is interesting to you because this is the biggest video show in the world. Right? Yep. Am I right? Whenever I say in the world, I feel like I have that ignoramus North American attitude where I just assume it's the biggest, but then there's some like billion person attendee in Brazil Chinese or, or Brazilian show. And I think, oh yeah, like still, even if every single person in North America went to this show, <laughs> it wouldn't just be a drop of the bucket. That's true. But well, okay, but it is significant That's for huge. the announcements. But as yeah. well. Like this is what everybody sort of saves up a lot of the exciting new stuff. In the video world. Yeah, I'll, I'll just give you the, the example of what I'm talking about is that imagine Bollywood in, uh, as compared to Hollywood. Hollywood's arguably um, the like the bigger business and the more important, the more culturally rele- relevant and whatever, but might not be as similar magnitude of Bollywood or the similar volume. So this is Hollywood's show, and this is the North American broadcasting show where all the releases are made of the cameras, the things are relevant to our industry here and Arguably, our industry is the most impactful. So, yes, biggest yeah, show. That makes sense. And then it also has uh, all sorts of production as well. There's radio broadcast mm-hmm. and podcast. Yeah, and live broadcast, all that stuff. Yeah, I was surprised uh, to see that NMX was inside of it as well. Uh, the New Media Expo used to be a separate thing, and now it's actually just inside of I didn't NMB. see it. Well, it's, Maybe, you probably wandered yeah. through it, and you didn't realize you were standing <laughs> right in the middle of it because it's just blended in. It's where the WordPress booth was and stuff. Yeah, I have no idea. There's apparently cool. I found out this year that there's an upstairs, and I oh, I haven't yeah. been there, but I kind of I kind of liken these conventions specifically just the overwhelming size of this convention to like, have you ever been to the Louvre mm-hmm. or like a big museum like that and where you'll, you'll just, just never to, see everything? Yeah, it's yeah. it's so yeah. all encompassingly large. But uh, yeah, I could have a list of just the stuff I didn't see that I intended to. Yeah. How could you make a list of all the stuff that you don't know? <laughs> the thing, two weeks afterwards when people are like, did you check out the blank? Because it was incredible. And yeah. I already know, I, I know this as a rule of thumb, but it's really hard to absorb things at a show in the same way as online. Like, yeah. you can understand it better from Twitter. You really, mm-hmm. you can. What you're missing is picking up the object and, like, seeing a demonstration of it, seeing it live into a screen. Mm-hmm. That's what's really missing. But it's hard to grasp all the news that's going around. I definitely was coming back to the hotel room checking the Twitter yeah, news updates. I, I just think, like, the level of redundancy I quite like is imagine that you even got taught in person something and that particular teaching was recorded. Then you you have right. redundancy of you able to rewatch or oh man I forgot this or that so example like last year I remember there was a big uh, like any big Adobe release they record all theirs all their speakers and stuff and then some visual effects ones that I watched last year that were way over my head and only certain things resonated mm-hmm. I could rewatch them clearly because they were recorded and then as well all the specs and all like the like as you're going from booth to booth you can see people getting interviewed and you see crews going around and capturing all of the content that you know 
you can depend on is there. Right. And you can just go and like if if touching it and hands on experience is good for your relationship with what will this feel like on production or what does the form factor of this camera feel mm-hmm. like or well, when I go, it's always for those things that are specifically tactile. Like we hung out for a little bit of time and I wanted to look at light and gimbals because those are the things that no amount of research online really are going to let you know how that's going to work. You need uh, to turn the knobs and see how it responds. Yeah, exactly. And see how the light falls off on your hand or something like that. Um, and that's what I generally look for. The cameras, gen- I know what I'm interested in before I even go to the show because right. the announcements are on you know, the weekend They're, Yeah, a lot like of the, the time. Um, so I know if that's going to be something I'm interested in or um, something that I could actually use where so often I'll just stumble across, um, you know, a light or, a, you know, some sort of camera support or something. That's what I go to NAB for. That's something tactile. When you, you haven't tried something before. I think yeah. I've got, so I've got a list. I've got a list of the stuff that was interesting to me. And pro- I know some of it overlaps with what you guys were into as well. But yeah. so I don't I'm, like what you like. Well, yeah, I'm sure there's something <laughs> in here. So there's a new DJI Ronin. Yeah, uh, the M, which is the lightest one, and you use these all the time, Jordan. One second. I, I what is a DJ running? Well, Jordan will tell us yeah. he knows all about these. I've never used them myself, but you do a lot of your cameras. I use a lot with them, um, and it's a three-axis gimbal, just like the Movi. Um, but what sets it apart is the auto calibration on it works insanely well. So I can change lenses and not have to worry about rebalancing the rig. Or well, let's take two steps back for all the photographers listening. Okay, <laughs> what is a gimbal? That's what I was kind of alluding what to you, as well. Uh, like, okay, we're gonna rush into this. All right. So what a gimbal is, um, there have been steady cams around for the longest time, which is basically a pendulum. Uh, you'd balance it, um, and it would give you smooth tracking shots. But it takes a lot of time to set up, and it takes a lot of experience to use one of those properly. Um, so the gimbal is a mechanical tool that basically takes the skill out of the equation. Anyone can walk with it, and the footage is going to look good, It's a, which is great on set. It means if you wanted to, say, pass it off to an assistant or something like like that during the shot. It doesn't take a lot of training for it. Uh, there's a lot of examples at the DJI booth where they're, yeah. uh, you know, passing it up and down, fire escapes Yeah, they and had stuff this like awesome demo video yeah. where there's like, a, you know, goes from handheld to a crane to a uh, wire rig and it's just moving through a whole set going from person to person in one continuum shot. I know this is, this nobody is, shoots that way but it's uh, yeah. fun to think that you could. This is yeah. kind of a, a side thing but did either of you see that uh, okay, so the, one of the common things with gimbals specifically, like a Movi, or if you put a camera system on it that's bigger than a DSLR, uh, they, if you can imagine um, trying to visualize what a steady cam usually is, is that it's a, a vest or something that goes around your body, and then the arm that holds the camera comes off the vest, so you're using like your body to hold the, the rig up, right. and gimbals traditionally are just extended in front of you and held in your hands, mm-hmm. so your arms get really tired. There was a, a rig that I saw that is essentially like the exoskeleton from um, Elysium, and it goes onto your back and has these like almost steady cam type spring loaded things that go and hold their ar- your arms up. Yeah, and then you and, then you and I was thinking the funny thing about gimbals is most of the time people say that they are the steady cam replacement, and I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> But now it's just become a full body. <laughs> yeah. yeah. City camp like most, most people think with gimbals specifically, they, the footage is gorgeous. And as much as 
it does the work of stabilizing for you. It does add work, physical work, because it is exhausting to shoot a whole day with them. Well, and I had a glide cam before, and I found it so exhausting I never used it. It was It's because it's one-handed as well all the time. It takes Mm -hmm. a long time to set up and balance, like a very long time to balance. And it's hard to use, and I just, like, I couldn't bring myself to struggle through it all the time. Yeah, well, and that's what's so compelling about the M now is the original Ronin was designed from everything from a little mirrorless camera to we've put Epics on it, FS7s, big cameras, where the M is just designed for mirrorless and DSLR. So the rig itself is quite a bit smaller and lighter. And what's also nice about that, because the camera's got a smaller center of gravity, is your arms aren't as far apart. So right. once you get them closer to the center of your body, you can run with it for a lot longer. And with the smaller size, we can expect a cheaper price, I hope. Uh, oh, right. Yeah, it's they're saying it's under 2000 I had a talk with them, and it's dramatically under 2000 yeah, So that, that makes it really interesting, too, when it becomes a lot more of a mainstream thing. And there's a few even really... There's a lot of gimbals there, actually. They yeah. were everywhere. I mean, I brought up DJI, but there are, like, oh, yeah. like, dozens of them. I didn't even know which ones to look at because uh, I hadn't heard of them. Yeah. A very notable thing to, to know, kind of... Oh, I, it's been my third NAB, and... I can imagine clearly with an innovative uh, field like this, there's a lot of technology and a lot of kind of new tools that are made, is there's sweeps and kind of uh, there's like waves of different fads, not fads, but things that get talked about the most. Uh, So a couple of years ago, it was like the Movi and the gimbals. Last year was drones, so Mm -hmm. just drones all over the place. And now it's like, you know, you see drones and gimbals, you know, in different rigs and gimbal, like movies and gimbals put on cranes and yeah. drones that right. it's like there all these different combinations. Well, and where you also see them moving like, downstream towards cheaper productions as well. Yeah, like, exactly. They become easier to make at a lower budget. Yeah. And, and it's important to note that, you know, with camera tech getting better at smaller sizes, like the black magic pocket cams and mm-hmm. tiny little black magic cameras that, it's not a degradation of quality. Really, it isn't. You, we're getting the same output out of these small cameras as we were out of larger cameras that required larger systems in the past. So it's really win-win that the quality is getting better for smaller cameras, and the gimbals are being made for those smaller cam- cameras, and then the gimb- gimbals are cheaper. So it's really, on a production end, it's win-win for everyone. It kind of helps the democratization of Doing this, so Jordan, out. Jordan, what do you put? What can you put on that new Ronin then? The new Ronin would be it's maxed out. They said at a DSLR with a zoom lens, like a five D or D eight hundred or something. It's going to be used primarily, I would say, with GH fours, Blackmagic pockets, or their new micro camera, okay. things like that. And it would be brilliant for those guys. And then there was also the really small one from Shape. Uh, I know you saw that because that was yeah. when I was with you. And it looks like a drill, basically. One hand-held thing with like a clamp mm-hmm. at the front. And for all smaller cameras, I mean, the demo I had it on was a iPhone. Yeah. But there's also the Blackmagic po- Pocket Cam that it had. And that was kind of fun. I mean, it's like, I don't know, the size of this water bottle in my hand. You can just pick it up with one hand and walk around. And it, it was the, mo- the motion seemed pretty good. It was interesting and yeah. very affordable. It was under 1000 yeah. yeah, what I've always, when the gimbals first came out, and so many people are using them for narrative, but where I think they could really be brilliant is for documentary work. Mm-hmm. And they're, they draw too much attention. Like if you're walking around with both arms separated in front of your body, where one of those smaller pistol grip ones, it draws next to no attention to itself. Mm-hmm. So I could see myself shooting on the street with it, be discreet, and you'd get a very interesting dynamic off that. You know, uh, also for the running gun, the docu-style shooting with the 
mechanically recalibrating setups that are being released where you can actually change your focal length. Like mm-hmm. for, for anyone that hasn't used a, a gimbal, a stabilizer, a steady camera, glide camera, anything, the lesser systems, the problem is that if you, you have to balance it, so there's a camera that weighs a certain amount with a lens that you know has a certain center of balance, and you essentially just put its counterbalance underneath that's what keeps it smooth. So it can't just tick tock like a like, you know, like you would if you were just normal handheld. It moves with a counterweight, and with these gimbals, it kind of replaced all of it with these mechanical mechanisms that does it even better. And now, yeah, it recalibrates when you actually make those subtle changes. Even if you make lens swaps, mm-hmm. imagine shooting running gun docu, and you want to be really kind of invisible. You want to be uh, not so present, and then also get. 10 different shots in when something's happening in a short amount of time you want to get as much coverage as possible mm-hmm. give yourself some edits in the or some options in the edits yeah so I, I think it would still be difficult but I can see it being a feasible possibility now with these more advanced gimbals it's definitely going that way and the only thing that I that I suppose I don't like I'm not seeing is I now have heard uh, lots of battle-tested stories or stories in the battlefield of um, high-pressure Movi situations when the actual mechanical side of the Movis don't, <clears throat> don't work. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and when a mechanical system that mechanically balances isn't mechanically working, mm-hmm. it doesn't work at all. Right. When a steady cam doesn't work, it still works. Yeah, you can like stick a wrench it's in like it. It's like springs and, kind of, and stuff, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Well, and we were trying the, uh, the one smaller manufacturer that had a 5D on it yeah. And you could just hear the motor straining under the... Yeah, like yeah I think it was a camera that right. was too big. Yeah. or And yeah, that's when you look at that footage after, those micro jitters, especially with something with a rolling shutter, you're, everything's going to turn to jello. It looks horrendous. Yeah, uh, it's funny, the best non-DJI gimbal I saw was from a little Korean company, Verivon, uh, who aren't known for doing uh, they do some cages and stuff like that but it worked really nicely and uh, price point isn't out there it must but be it, getting easy to make them if like all, so many companies are able to I think they're standardized parts yeah. that other people are using but uh, I, I love working with uh, gimbals I'm just trying to find I know that there's a whole bunch of creative potential there and it's fun to try and figure out some way to use it in an interesting way. Well, that's the only item I had that was like camera support, like rig support. A lot of, uh, did you guys have anything else that was exciting about Not so much on support. Well, in terms of movement, that (coughs) new uh, 3DR drone. Oh, yeah, that I never saw, but you told me. The Solo? Uh, yeah, the Solo is what, really interesting. I didn't get a chance to see it. Uh, it does a few things that set it apart from the Phantom. It works on the same GPS signal, all that. But it basically has all the upgrades from a Phantom already built in. So you're getting the um, the HD downlink straight to an iOS device. Uh, it works with a GoPro, but actually it's the only one that talks to the GoPro uh, remotely. So your remote control will also run the GoPro at the same time. Uh, and it's got a few pre-built um, shots that you'd use a lot of time. The most interesting to me was a cable cam. You set a start point and end point with GPS and the amount of time you want it to take, just like a motorized dolly, and it'll do it for you. And you just throw this helicopter in the air and let go of the controls and it'll handle it? You can do aerial time lapse with it. it they showed some examples of it, and it's crazy. That is crazy. And uh, also, it is cheap. It's yeah, and it's a thousand, it's a thousand bucks. bucks. And uh, one other thing they did—I don't know why no one's done this—it's absolutely genius. They built a video game into the controller itself, so you plug it through HDMI into a screen, and 
you can simulate it holding the controller itself learn to fly it just oh, at home I see what you're saying yeah and right. so you get all the controls in your mind then you Practice take it out them. and it's exactly the same you're actually using the same controller because that's clearly like one of the biggest flaws or the hilarious flaws or implications that comes from drones is Nobody has like crashability. To, le- to learn to fly them, you yeah. have to put someone's life in danger. I actually don't basically. know how I feel. Like, I love seeing drone footage, and I don't know how I feel about the public access to drones. Like, yeah. There's a lot of drones flying around now, and it's yeah. kind of weird, and it's probably and it's not going to stay that of, for a long time. That's why I'm a big fan of this getting more computerized, because it Most can dangerous. keep people from doing stupid stuff, right. uh, which I'm very much in favor right. of. Maybe that becomes the form of regulation someday, is that there's less It's just built in, yeah. Uh, I think that's a distinct possibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just a taste of what's to come. It's clearly just kind of a subsection of like autonomous cars and robotically or autonomously controlled anything. <coughs> so... It's all just inevitable. <laughs> yeah, who needs a cameraman anymore? But that's how it felt sometimes walking around the floor with the amount of robots controlling things. It's like yeah, the pretty much all of the big the studio things were yeah. completely mechanical now. So there was that free fly system. Did you see that where they yeah. just hold the fake rig and then the motors on the actual camera just duplicate mo- what you duplicate do. what's happening? And they would have like five or six rigs that were all moving in sync. It was pretty cool demo yeah I can um, I can see for like live concerts and stuff a lot of applications for that mm-hmm. you could have a switcher basically at the back just holding uh, one of those yeah, cycling but totally yeah you can be robot directors like in no time <laughs> and they're probably going to be really good too <laughs> honestly I do feel threatened yeah just um, imagine like a robotic AI that samples like all of Vimeo and then comes up with some <laughs> idea based on all the content combined it's just going to be a bunch of light leaks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's hilarious. Uh, let's move on to cameras a bit, because that's probably the most time-consuming thing. There, it, I, it wasn't that exciting, actually, for me, because what I wanted to see didn't show up. Right. Which was? Which was the A7S Mark II. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't be disappointed, because nobody, nobody promised me anything. It's just, personally, I would have liked to see that. Uh, the A7S seems to be, like... The, the most interesting camera to me in the last while for yeah. like lower price things but there was some really mine sitting right there I love that camera and it's we know what the update is that's what's so frustrating right. about the A7S 2 is they've already done the A7 so we know the stabilizers coming the better ergonomics hopefully internal 4K and we know that the A7 happened really fast like faster yeah. than it should have yeah. so but I, I was listening to the guy at the Sony booth and he's like everybody that's the only thing people are asking me all yeah. day long people are saying so can I see the A7S 2 yeah he's got to break it to them that <laughs> it, it didn't happen yeah it's funny um, that's something I, I never really thought about too much but I heard from multiple big camera companies this year is the pro divisions this is their this is their day basically and if you look at something like the A7S 2 uh, Panasonic's GH4 right basically they're, consumer they're consumer so they're like please don't steal our thunder by bringing out something amazing at this show uh, which is I believe why we saw some not all the features from the GH4 firmware getting announced that I've had a chance to test, and we didn't see anything in the A7 series. Uh, no Canon DSLR, anything like that. Nikon, same deal. Is uh, Yeah, they don't want the pro divisions and consumers right. getting mixed. Well, and that's the other big thing I'm waiting for but didn't expect at all was the 5D Mark Isn't there specs or rumors? There's, lots, there's yeah. lots of rumors, but... I don't mm-hmm. know. Nothing happened. Okay, but things were announced, so maybe we should give attention to the things that <laughs> well, did happen and not what didn't happen. I also think it's kind of uh, important to note 
uh, Jordan, like you were saying, with the pro divisions being focused on. So, like, one of the things that's kind of hard to digest when you come wanting to make a small leap into video or even video production is that there's some awesome stuff here, but it's got some pretty big Hollywood-style price tags on them. And there's some amazing camera technology and some very high-quality stuff, but... And it's it's the stuff some of the stuff that I was wowed by, except it's it deserves to be wowed over because it's like yeah. expensive and mm-hmm. well, the, awesome. And the big one, and I've talked to both you guys about this, was the Alexa sixty five, yeah. which I, I've seen movies. I know what Alexa footage looked like, but it was plugged directly into a TV. So you walk up and you see yourself through a sixty five millimeter like best of class sensor yeah. and mm-hmm. a really beautiful lens. And it, I just felt like I was in a I was really in a movie. I mean, I've seen good footage before, but this just looked well, so perfect. Ari's uh, Ari made like a, an awesome statement this year by expanding their Alexa line in both directions. Right. Oh yeah. That's they like they up and down. like the Ari Alexa is arguably the best, highest quality, or let's just say the nicest picture of any kind of yeah. high production uh, level camera, comped uh, comparable to uh, the Red Epic and Red Dragon and whatever the Alexa has always just had this look to it that everyone likes more. And they released the Alexa Mini that is, um, you know, the form factor is the size of, like, you know, big medium format camera or, like, a Red Epic. It's like a box. So it's uh, tiny, but it also is cheaper, and it's more production-ready for smaller smaller jobs or, or drone footage. And then in the other direction, um, sorry, the Alexa Mini is still the same output as the Alexa 2. I still think it right. does so you can match two, footage. 2K, yeah. Alexa Raw. It's the same kind of image quality. It would have lost some form factor uh, um, qualities or characteristics. I'm not sure uh, if you just compare the specs. There's something that has to be different with half the body being yeah, gone. Handling's totally different. There's yeah. no NDs. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. But there's like an, a second box that's the other half of the camera. Is that how it works? Like. I've seen a bunch of like cables running into like another thing. Yeah, uh, so you can split up the components, which is uh, really nice for drone footage um, or like vehicle work because you can have half the camera sitting in a separate with all the storage and stuff like that, and then the sensor and lens somewhere else. It's everything that they're doing right now is I think Ari has the most intelligent uh, look at design right now. Since you've played with the new. So you've seen, like, actually use some of the new medium format still cameras. Yes. How how do you think they compare? In I, terms of the... more way. I don't know, like... In, oh, well, I see what you mean. Yeah, image, like like in how terms do, of, like, the top and, and like... Yeah, like, what does the absolute best in stills yeah. feel like compared to... Especially in tonal range and, like, latitude and, not, yeah. like, the, the things that are hard to do with digital... Mm-hmm. Um, because there is still even shoots video yeah terrible terrible video (laughs) Uh, but no there's I I think it's the same thing that you commented on when you saw the uh, art the Alexa 65 is there is a very difficult to describe aesthetic difference when you get that to that sensor size and yeah there's in the case of the Pentax 645Z or the new Hasselblad C um there's definitely a big bump in terms of how much you can dig out of the shadows. Everybody's seen those Philip Bloom examples where he underexposes a shot by like seven stops and pulls it all up and it looks perfect. Uh, there's advantages to that. But I do think in that class, still-wise, it's, th- it's that aesthetic, that tough-to-put-your-finger-on larger. Yeah. And it's... Alexa, I don't know what it was. Like, I cannot really describe well, it. It just of- felt... Yeah. One of the things, clearly, like Alexa Futa, uh, well, Alexa Raw is really, really buttery. They're like 
ones and zeros crunching on the in the computer end. Their algorithms that actually compile that aesthetic is is like their engineers are brilliant in that fashion. Like the image just uh, almost undisputably steals everyone's opinion as being the nicest, and it's nicest because it's organic. They have these really organic uh, digital noise patterns and like all these things, but the Alexa 65 is like when you go see an IMAX movie and it just looks different. It's because when right. you change, specifically with hyperfocal distancing, like what determines shallow depth of field, mm-hmm. one of the things that determines it is the sensor size. Yeah. So same with the medium format camera. Yeah. If you put on the same lens on a medium format camera, it it falls off faster and it, mm-hmm. and it you can shoot wider and still have the like <clears throat> f1.4 aesthetic. Actually, I think I read that they had stitched together regular Alexa. 35, the, the other Alexa um, that, that would make perfect sense. It basically yeah. combined the image. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny special. that you mentioned still um, medium format because what they're using for glass is redesigned uh, Hasselblad optics oh. that they've just eliminated the breathing and added stepless iris and follow focus and stuff. Uh, and those are beautiful lenses. It's funny, not many people know it, but those are actually Fuji. Some of the more consumer attainable stuff. Yeah. <laughs> There was uh, the Ursa <clears throat> Mini from Blackmagic Design, which was mm-hmm. really interesting, potentially. I don't know. The specs on it are really compelling. Yeah. Um, getting that. The size compared to the. To the Ursa. Ursa. The Ursa is a boat anchor, and that, that was the feedback from everyone who saw one. Uh, and I've just never liked Blackmagic's ergonomics. They've never gotten it right. And this looks like the camera that they finally got right ergonomically, which is going to do them a lot of favors. Well, it kind of looks more like a normal camera. It looks way, like, like an FS7. Exactly. They really, it seems designed off of that body, and I love that design. So, uh, yeah, for it opens it up for more run-and-gun stuff, handheld work, um, as opposed to having to rig every piece of the Blackmagic kit and up. At a crazy price point for what it potentially is. It's yeah. 3000 right? Uh, no, it's going to be about six and a half. Six and a half. Yeah. Oh. Um, What's well, three thousand? Yeah, something's like something's three thousand. Uh, is it the is it the they 4K moved down the four K production? I believe. Or no? So do you get like a two K for less, and then the four K like four point six K? I'm gonna have to look up their specs. Oh, okay. yeah. You know what? Just put in the show notes or. I'll, yeah. cut, I'll just cut all this out. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. these that. specs, this is one thing about these types of things that are hard to digest is yeah. so many spec upgrades, so many specific things in all these different genres of thought. It's really hard to actually plug it all in, uh, yeah. categorize it. So I just think uh, similar of Blackmagic that they have been trying to kind of reinvent the um, the price point and the form factor to their own aesthetic and their own design, and they've tested out some waters, and really they're just, I suppose, trying to meet the demand right in the middle and this camera really is going to do that at a really good approachable price range and um the the images that come out of those cameras are still great they're they're producing some really good art and some really good stuff so uh, hopefully you know once this thing gets battle tested and it goes out and people start using it i think uh if it gets good reviews it'll it might be another camera that's considered in that same conversation around that price point yeah what i'm seeing i'm seeing 5000 on bnh for the 4.6 and that's the mini, so, okay. Yeah, but cool. hey, everybody can Google this. We're yeah. not a, we're not an authoritative source on anything. So right. Yeah. But like, what what Blackmagic is most interesting for to me is giving lower prices on this amount of latitude. Like mm-hmm. that's what everybody else is, has a hard time doing is giving you this many stops yeah. for a lower price. Because when I see pocket cam footage, sometimes yeah. I feel I'm like I can't tell that it's on a one thousand dollar camera at all. Like it feels yeah. 
like a much more expensive camera. So mm-hmm. if they can get the form factor down, then that, that's the one big area that they've and they've got and to make it work. Too. Having, like, I th- I've yeah heard complaints about production consistency. Their their quality assurance is some of the or quality control rather is some of the worst I've right. ever seen. So it's a matter of yeah them delivering it because we did have to wait you know for the Ursa and then the cinema camera before that you know a year after announcement for them to start to ship. But only in the camera world, right? I mean, because yeah. obviously they have a lot of experience with everything else they make. Yes. and I don't hear problems with their no like their we, we've been using their converters forever and they're rock solid uh, and their software is great. Um, it's just I think the with Blackmagic what we're seeing is something we never get to see with cameras and that's we got to see the evolution of a camera from like concept to something usable the difference with Blackmagic is they released all the in-betweens um, all the different steps in that design process but the Ursa Mini feels like the first finished camera that they've put out what about the uh, tiny one the, the really micro. small one yeah mm. I only saw it like on the side of my eye oh, it's really it's like yeah. interesting it's like a pack of tic tacs yeah it's really cool <laughs> it's like it looks like it's just a lens mount with <laughs> nothing else yeah <laughs> and that's essentially what it is with but, a lot of latitude yeah but yeah. It, it makes perfect sense for like we talked about with the um the mini Alexa, um, you know, something that you could just stick on for car footage. And they're selling it a lot for drones, but you could do a lot of, you know, stick them all over a set. Yeah, that, that was the idea that I thought was interesting of like a TV studio, basically. You could stick those on a bunch of robots or mm-hmm. uh, yeah. just on tripods for a home studio. They're $1,000 each. It's not that much, considering no. the amazing quality that probably comes out of them. Yeah. yeah. And then Blackmagic also announced the update to DaVinci Resolve. Yeah, Di- which, uh, DaVinci Resolve 12. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Makes it look like they're going after all the other editing systems gradually. Like, I don't know if they're fully committed to it because I didn't try to cut anything with it. But playing around with it, it looks like they want to be a full-featured. It's, it's a uh, great NLE. suite. Like, it is a really robust program that has been... In the works, similar to like what Jordan just said about seeing all the in-betweens of the design process, this is like Blackmagic's growth. You're witnessing, you know, that as the demand has been growing in the editing, like with Resolve being fundamentally a color grading program and thought of and the history of a color grading program, they added an, uh, a nonlinear editor into it uh, to cut like Adobe Premiere. And it's been like... Uh, questionable of whether or not you'd ever want to start and finish a project all in there. Before. I don't. I don't think they even intend for you to. I can't imagine it's like pretty that. slick. Well, <laughs> like, no, no, I, at this point, I think I think they're trying to get it to that. point. Yeah, like this Nobody's release switch yet, but this release maybe, is pretty uh, substantial. Like a friend of mine and I were walking around uh, today, and we went and dicked around on uh, on Resolve, and he's a VFX guy, but. He just said, I think I might go out of the Adobe Creative Suite. There's so many other things that might actually pull away from it. Uh, Considering high-level stuff, like this is one of the things that it's hard to talk about in the consumer or prosumer uh, department because usually the replacement, like even DaVinci Resolve's color grading as compared to doing your color grading in Premiere or like Premiere's color grading announcements alone, this, this NAB were crazy. So the reason why you grade and resolve would be like for feature film quality stuff and some really high level stuff like how you do your your uh, secondary perspective tracking and secondary selections it's like a whole different type of color grading so when I say that anyone would think about leaving Creative Cloud it's like 
using other VFX programs, like even the Foundry makes uh, a, a VFX compositing software called Nuke. Yeah. And they released last year Nuke Studio. And Nuke Studio is essentially, if you're going to make a commercial, like a really high level, high production value commercial, you know, in the like uh, VFX heavy, whatever, and you're almost having a, pra- a, a VFX element in every shot that's 3D or whatever. It doesn't make any sense not like to to go into these other programs. So they built Nuke Studio, which is like Resolve adding a nonlinear editor into it. Nuke Studio has also an editor that you know is like the dynamic link kind of connection in Creative Cloud. So it was funny coming into this thought pattern today when I was starting to compare these things. Like, oh my god, if this one exists, what does it mean for this one? And there's this program that's make, becoming so good. And I thought. The programs that are becoming as good over here to the left and to the right is because there's millions of people joining this community every year. So all these software can actually still approach their audience that just so happens to like that form factor or that UI or yeah. mm-hmm. whatever. And so whatever, they're right? doing this like free entry level thing like Nuke announced and like Da yeah. Vinci did two years ago. Da Vinci has had a, uh, a free, even commercial use thing that I think it was commercial, but uh, regardless, it had for its free model it was fully functional, but with a maximum output of 1080p, which I thought was hilarious because that's essentially the standard. Right? Less, less nodes as like levels of uh, yeah, like as well. you yeah. could but not still, get as like, deep into it. And then uh, for some of uh, visual effects, like uh, Tyler was just saying, is Nuke made an announcement that they were going to release a uh, a Nuke X uh, non-commercial use um, like full. Program to use. So, for practicing this software, it's actually quite hard because Nuke is like twelve thousand dollars. So it's buy. primarily for learning. It is entirely for learning and personal work. <laughs> so it's non-commercial. Okay, so yeah, Adobe as well. You're an Adobe nerd. So what did you think of what they changed? I actually spent uh, all yesterday, most of yesterday, watching the full um, like sit down. Uh, all the new releases, all the programs, all the everything. So I, I did a lot of Adobe time. And uh, they released a couple of really big things. <clears throat> Specifically, uh, in Premiere, they changed the color workflow that is going to work around an app that they have, an iOS app right now. It's called Candy, Project Candy. And it creates what is called a 3D LUT. So it will grab color samples from any particular scene, like you can use existing photos that you like the color grade and the color look, uh, existing photos, uh, graphics, all these things, and it will actually build a geometry of that as well based on the gradients and the light directions. So basically like, well what I saw is it looked like it picked up the highlight colors and then turned that into, so if there's a blue sky and a, a red balloon, it gives you like a blue and red tinted yeah, look, kind of. So it's it's supposed to really hit like match like at an autonomous level a really smart grab. So you, you know, there's uh, similar to an app called Adobe Cooler, which is K U L E R. It does color palette sampling, and it will just look at uh, almost like how a camera thinks of metering by gridding an image and then taking the average exposure of each part of the grid to guess the. The exposure—that's how like metering would work mm-hmm. on a camera. This is what it's and that doing. That works pretty well. Cooler works nicely. Yeah, and these just guess based on the primary colors being used in the all the shadow values, average, and mm-hmm. all the midtone out like average. And this one, Project Candy, does a smart grab, and then you can move the points around as well and, and do it. But 
Premiere's actual functionality that changed is they added a lot of almost Lightroom type functionality, uh, like UI, into their color grading suite. So you have sliders for things. It's it's like a Lightroom type or a camera raw type thing, like mentality of color grading now with video, and that is. That's crazy. It's like going to add some amazing looks and some really high level color grading. Pardon me. You'll you'll be using Project Candy. Like, does that something you'll put into your workflow right away? I'll at least try it. Like LUTs, for instance. LUTs stand for lookup tables. It's an acronym, and uh, they are starting points most most of the time. Because one of the reasons why you use a LUT on uh, a a job uh, is like. Imagine with photography, like a commercial job that has to be on a 10-page layout, you probably want similar kind of tones and and feels to those 10 pages. But with uh, video, when you're cutting it all together, color grading has to have a continuity. So LUTs usually are just a nice base to to each of them. Mm -hmm. And then your secondaries, uh, which is your local color changes, can be wherever they need to be to artistically make it what it needs to be and also work on that continuity to make it even better. But like... I really like the Adobe Mobile Capture. Um, like what they're doing to mobile is exciting to me. Like they released an, an app, just not at NAB, but a while ago called Adobe Shape, and it's just like a, 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 a it's like a camera app that makes vector images, mm-hmm. and it's amazing. And it goes into your Creative Cloud library. You have a little tab on the side of every one of your uh, applications that your Creative Cloud libraries, and then you can take like these LUTs and bring them into. Any of these programs, you can bring them into After Effects, into Premiere. With all their focus on mobile, you know what somebody needs to do? Like, what I'm desperate for is a LUT app where I can just take LUT files, which are tiny little text files, basically, mm-hmm. and apply them to things on my phone, videos or photos. I think, like, yeah. that, that could, does that not exist? I searched for it, and I couldn't find it. I don't but know that, if that exists. That's, that's the app real, I want It would be a great preview, too, if you're looking at yeah. um, a lot online. Even, you can just take a picture or a video clip with your phone. But you can start doing it for, like, full, like, beginning to end production. Like, if you're doing, especially if you're yeah. matching photos with uh, videos or, like, you know, we've been doing mobile video stuff on mm-hmm. the road and we need to make it look cool. Mm-hmm. It's a lot better than any of the, like, built-in effects that you're going to find anywhere. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And Adobe, uh, Adobe made a really big push on, again, almost, it's funny that I want to use the word autonomous again, but I do. And like I said, it's inevitable. It's just the direction everything is going is smarter, um, ob- objective data gathering. Um, so, like you see Adobe's releases over maybe the last couple of years with <clears throat> things in After Effects like the 3D camera tracker where it can assess your, your data and it can know how your camera moved through a scene. And now what they're doing is they're using um, face tracking. So they have motion tracking that isn't just local to um, imagine oh, you right. put it over a hand and you'd say, you'd say track these pixels as these pixels move across the the scene what it does is it has facial recognition now that can actually track faces and it uses about 30 points to track the the face and imagine it's about 15 points around the mouth it's about you know 10 points around the eyes two on the pupils a couple on the nose and it like (laughs) tracks the how the face is scrunching up and moving around and you can put things onto a face because when you track the data the coolest thing i saw was the face morph which i loved where you can basically like erase uh jump cuts in interview software well Mm -hmm. 
Okay, it was called Morph Cut. Oh. Yeah, Morph Cut. And it's like jump cuts. Imagine just uh, a single camera that shoots an interview and you want to cut five seconds of, you know, in between these pauses of sentences. You cut it out, you butt the clips up, and you have a jump cut that's kind of abrupt. They use this smart technology to put a transition there that, that looks at about five frames into one clip, five frames from the last clip, and it meshes them together. It, it makes them one. The funny thing is I, I did a lot of talking to the Adobe engineers and some of the Adobe like higher-ups, and I said, hey, I have a Photoshop uh, request, feature request, and I said, you know the morph cut that essentially just takes two unlike things and makes them like, that makes them uh, the same? I said, can you put that uh, into Photoshop in the image stack where it says auto-align and then have morph auto-align? Mm -hmm. So just make the auto-align, if it's you know pixel, not pixel perfect, that it can actually just massage that uh, maybe with the slider or something and make it exactly the same. So that's kind of exciting. And uh, yeah, you know, uh, I think actually the last thing to note is just the character animator, which is their big release, their big wow factor release. Um, which is an extension for After Effects. And essentially, this is a whole new way of doing animation, like actual um, cartoon-style animation, character animation, is that it uses your webcam, and it does the same facial tracking that After Effects does, except it reads that tracking data, and then in real time, creates and controls, or it controls, sorry, a character. So, Which is funny because it kind of looks the way like what animators always did of staring in the mirror and then drawing their own face. Yeah. Except it's doing it itself. In real yeah. time. And, and these things are uh, these things are cool because they're changing um, they're taking the complexity the almost the uh, what people are scared of with After Effects and they're removing it making it easier and more approachable by changing kind of the interface of you do what's called takes you record these kind of actions like almost performances that you do and you can yeah you can kind of change them but the major flaw that I found in character animator is that it can't do a round trip back into After Effects and, and take everything that you record with this smart technology and have it then go back into After Effects in the form of keyframes and editable values and uh, stuff that doesn't it exist just creates yet. video it just creates what what they would say still are takes mm -hmm. so the only way to change it after it's done is to do more takes right. actually with your webcam so I think that that's kind of a flaw but like Adobe is killing it in lots of different ways I like that my favorite thing about Adobe that keeps me really excited is that Creative Cloud was arguably a decision that some people did not want to make and couldn't see the value in and Adobe is making sure that you see that they are constantly pushing out things that you're excited about. They're listening to the community. They're thinking of where it's going, and they make your subscription feel like it's not just paying for the same old, same old. I'm like 100% behind that. I think everybody's really nervous with it, but I've like, I couldn't be more happy with what I, where my money's ended up going. Yeah, it's fantastic. And, you know, it's, uh, it's going to yield some really awesome results. And I think that Adobe is going to help us all make some pretty cool stuff. But I, uh, I unfortunately have to leave. I think that Tyler and Jordan are going to wrap up. Uh, I have to leave to go out and switch hotels. Uh, it was awesome to be back on the podcast. And, like, NAB has been really awesome. This kind of stuff fills us all with inspiration. And it's the type of thing that I think um, – for the next few podcasts as this news trickles out in the industry and again when things get battle tested it's it gives us a lot to talk about for a while so well, a lot of the time the news isn't that interesting until you see what it comes yeah about, so. exactly and uh i know that uh 
introing, talking more about video has been cool on this podcast that um, the interim state or the kind of in between that a lot of people are in where they're really into that, should I get into it? How complicated is it? How do I learn about it? And um, yeah, this stuff is really exciting. Not only is it uh, fun to talk about, but as these tools get easier, like these gimbals and stuff like Creative Cloud, it's becoming more approachable too. It's honestly a very worthy thing to, uh, to get excited about. Cool. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Yeah, thank you. And we're back without Chris. Yeah. But, um, that's, but okay. that's okay because now that since I didn't make it over to the premiere booth really at all to check out any of those new features, I can speak again. So I'm pretty excited <laughs> yeah. about that. Yeah. Welcome back. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So what uh, you do know about, though, is Panasonic. Yeah. I don't know anything about it at all, so tell me, they announced something? Yeah, they brought out, it's kind of interesting, they took their... It's got a really long name. Uh, yeah, it's the um, uh, DVX200, no. I got AGDVX200. DVX, yeah, yeah. Uh, so the DVX100 is actually one of the most important professional cameras uh, ever made. It was, the, it was the first one to shoot 24, it was a DV tape camera. came out like 10 years oh, okay. ago. Is that what they shot um, 28 days later? Exactly, yeah. Oh, yeah. Any, anything that has kind of a digital look, uh, or all of the old um, dogma films okay. um, are all shot on that. Um, and it was the film school camera, and every person who went through it, that was often like a mandatory camera, or everyone had one, because uh, it was all about getting that 24 frame look. So what they've done is taken that, the new way for the cinematic aesthetic is of course larger sensors for shallow depth of field so they've brought out a large sensor version of that and it's it's a weird camera because it's still a fixed lens on it um it's a 29 to like 300 and change zoom um it's reasonably bright to eight to four or five but i think it does make a lot of sense because if you're just going to go shoot a single project um, getting a GH4 and a bunch of lenses and XLR attachments, this is going to wind up being a bit less expensive. Right. But how big the market is for a fixed lens. And how big can, do you say the sensor is? It's four thirds. It's the GH4 okay. sensor is the impression I got from yeah. it, which is a good sensor. Is this, is this exciting? I mean, it doesn't excite me. When no, I'm not excited either. Okay. I, can, I can see a use for it, mm -hmm. definitely. Um, and I do think there's going to be a lot of event people and stuff like that where they get that big sensor aesthetic but it'll still autofocus for them they get a power zoom it's just not compelling to me um and i don't think film school students are going to flock to it which is why that name seems kind of odd to me right um, but it, it, there's going to be a small market uh, i was very I, I have to say the panasonic booth was far and away the best booth because some of our footage was playing in it so yeah, I saw that. That, that impressed me a great deal. Yeah. It was a nice booth. Uh, for the GH4, um, and I think that would have been the big news if they'd brought out the full firmware upgrade for the GH4. What's expected in the new? Uh, they just launched anamorphic support, oh. which is pretty cool. Um, I'm obsessed with shooting anamorphic now. I, I always thought it was a cool look, and then actually taking out some old cow uh, Russian anamorphic lenses and shooting it on that and de-squeezing the image and Are it there looks affordable lenses that like normal people can Vedra is making affordable lenses so it'll be like under five thousand dollars I don't know how much I just care the more, the more you move I start oh you're getting the crackling yeah just okay. careful with your shit yeah okay so posture um, are there affordable anamorphic lenses, though? 
because they seem expensive to me. Yeah, then generally, they, like the ones that we brought out were old, like seventies lenses, or Russian ones, and they were insured for fifty thousand a pop. So, right. um, but uh, Vedra, who are doing some really interesting stuff with micro four thirds and E mount cinema lenses, are bringing out a series of budget anamorphics, and that I can't wait. To. How much is a budget anamorphic? I, they say under five thousand, mm-hmm. and I've I've held it, and it feels like a cinema lens, which is you'd expect it to be like a plastic piece of garbage at that price point. But mm-hmm. if it's a $5,000 lens, then yeah. well, you're probably going to be able to rent one of those for like 40 bucks a day. And if I'm doing a music video or something, yeah, I'm probably not going to buy a set of anamorphics, but I would love to rent some and go shoot in scope. It's it's very cool, interesting aesthetic I've never yeah. been able to I like that with. idea, but it seems like more work than all probably ever end up doing yeah that's how i felt and then i did it and and it was worth it and it's well it's like film you know you Mm -hmm. talk about that how it's you know it's so expensive for processing and stuff like that as a photographer but it's worth it for that aesthetic there's it has that magic and yeah i felt that exact same way with the anamorphics i know there's a iphone adapter for anamorphic now which I yeah. think it's hilarious and interesting. I did play with it for a couple hours. Yeah, I would. I mean, like, is, I would, is I don't this think just a, like a digital it. filter? Or is it actually no, no, no. an anamorphic? So it's a yeah. It's a you mount an anamorphic lens onto it, and then the software will basically it does you know, the unsqueeze. Yeah, it'll just unsqueeze it. It's like pretty simple. Pretty how, straightforward. How much is this lens? I don't know. I don't even know what it's called. Um, I looked it. Up. I think it was. On, I think it was on Kickstarter. So to be fair, okay. it may never come out. Okay, because I will buy that yeah. in a heartbeat. We'll have to yeah. do some googling to find out. Perfect. Oh, I just realized how many show notes I'm going to have to do for this. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, okay, so the last that Panasonic you're talking about reminds me a bit of the XC10 yeah. Canon, right? the other like fixed lens, big sensor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which. My first impression of that was a bit more excited, yeah. maybe because I pay more attention to Canon. Yeah. But then once I saw it operating in low light, yeah. I was pretty disappointed. And you told me about the the lens on that as well, which is quite slow. It's a slow so, lens. It's a 2.8 to 5.6. Yeah, so describe, describe the camera overall. I mean, oh, Canon... It's, it's sex. Like, it really looks like a shrunken down medium format camera the, and it's an adjustable handle which feels great in your hand you would guess it's a still camera looking at it yeah. at a glance and I guess they're marketing it for journalists as their goal for it and I could kind of see it for that but the sensor size I think is one of the big concerns it's a one inch sensor uh, not too much resolution it's a 12 megapixel sensor which is okay for again photojournalists that's totally fine but you can't do too much cropping and stuff like that. I so wouldn't want to text. It would be a backup stills thing. You wouldn't Exactly, as opposed stills. to a primary. And how I always see when they talk about these hybrid devices is I want something that can do a great job at both things, which is you know, where I think the GH4 or Sony's A7 cameras, you know, they do both really, really well. I feel like this would be a video camera, an okay yeah. camera. With it would be an ultimate at-home video camera. Camera. Oh, totally. Like, like just for a consumer? Like a home video yeah. camera? Yeah, it absolutely 4K, would. 4K, that'd be yeah. pretty nice. I mean, I still wouldn't actually recommend it for that. <laughs> yeah. But if you want to do that, Sony has a consumer camcorder, the AX100, which is half the price. And it's got the same size sensor in it, but it's a 2.8 to 4 lens. It's a faster lens. A uh, little wider lens HD. as well. Uh, no, full 4K. Huh. Um, so... I don't know. It's really tough for me to find a market for that mm-hmm. XC100. Um, I know I wouldn't be interested in it at all. X, XC sounds or like XC10. XC10. Yeah. 
it's a bad name. Yeah. All right. So so we're gonna we're gonna have forgotten about that by the time the show comes out probably. But what else happened? The C three hundred. The C three hundred Mark II. Yeah. So that's a big deal, right? Which I, is this is the camera everybody was waiting for. Just um, the three hundred was hugely popular for broadcast and some film stuff as well. Uh, and it looks like a really great camera. All right, there's nothing looking at it. The only thing that kind of annoys me is if you want to shoot slow motion with it, the slower you want to go, the more it crops the sensor. Yeah, why has Canon struggled with that so much? I, and, well, and Red does it as well with the Scarlet. And, right, but yeah. I guess compared to Sony's. Yeah. Um, well, you know, Sony's Sony, been doing a they've been, great like job. The, yeah, the FS700 from a few years ago was still full sensor, slow motion. Mm-hmm. Um, and that camera, when it launched, was 7,000. That was two and a half, three years ago, I guess. And now... The uh, Canon is $20,000 now, and technology has moved a lot, and it still can't do the full sensor read while shooting slow-mo. And, uh, yeah, I don't understand it. But uh, ergonomically, it's great. The images from it look beautiful. Sorry, how much is it? It's going to be 20000 Canadian. 20, yeah. Um, because most of our listeners are Canadian, so... <laughs> Well, I, I still think in Canadian dollars. No, no, that's good. Um, that's why you need Cameron here to, mm-hmm. you know, do the American for the rest of the world. Um, yeah, I, I find it really. The only thing is, it's more than twice the price of a Sony FS7. Yeah, which I love that camera so to are death. People gonna choose a. Double the price camera that is not double the feature set by any means. Here's this is my impression based uh, the enthusiasm for everyone is when the can the Canon was announced before NAB a few days before. So I was still at the camera store, my day job. Yeah, and you heard and, response from people. And yeah, I get the response, and the response was we got a whole pile of pre-orders for Sony's FS7 because I think everybody waited to see what was going to happen. That camera got announced, and everyone seems to be going that route. And certainly, I was kind of holding on to see. And yeah, I'll use the 300 Mark II for the odd thing, but just dollars to performance. Okay, so I'm looking at the specs. Is there anything that is actually better than the FS7? Like, is there anything that blows the FS7 away? Uh, it might be a better low light camera. Was the impression that I got from it? Might maybe maybe. Um, it's much smaller, so again, yeah, for broadcast and stuff like that, it's going to draw a little less attention, but. Not practically for, for not ten thousand dollars smaller. No, it's crazy. I, I, it's can. I mean, I could gripe about Canon all day, but it just seems like an arrogance kind of, and because so many people are already in the three hundred system, uh, I don't think a lot of people look at outside options a lot of the time. Because I know I've had a lot of people who are like, "Well, I can't get a Sony. I have my Canon lenses," and then I mention you can plumped on and they work just fine with an adapter and yeah, yeah. When, I, when I used that Metabones adapter that you rented me that was it's like a native lens yeah. it was amazing yeah loved it so it's all become pretty seamless and I think Canon's and they're doing the same thing with their bodies I think because they're not innovating too much because their glass is great and people have spent it's a lot of money it's not even that great anymore that's the that's the, the third party like, stuff is really yeah. catching up but still if you've got $20,000 invested in Canon glass. You're not going to jump systems. Seems to be Canon's mentality. Yeah. But you can because the glass works just fine on a Sony or a Panasonic now. So then we might all end up buying third-party Canon mount yes. glass. That's exactly what I do. Canon lenses. That's, yeah. yeah. Well, actually, yeah, no, to think about it, I was using a Canon mount Sigma on the Sony when I was yeah. shooting with it. So there was no Canon involved. Yeah. Except the name, like maybe they have to pay a license to the mounts. No. No? No, I think it's open. I, I think so. I don't know. Weird. Um, yeah, I, and then the rest of their booth, um, you know, nothing. Yeah, they had the 5D um, 
R S and S? Yeah. Or is it S R? Yeah, the high resolution. The big ones. Cameras, yeah. yeah, so uh, and a big sample print from it that yeah. did look amazing. It's, it's, it, they're crazy sharp images yeah. on that, but those blacks were pretty deep, and that's what scares me again about the Canons. I haven't had a chance to shoot with one, but I just really want good shadows from a Canon camera. For, for video. Video and stills. Oh. But still, you, do you feel like it's missing in the stills area? Totally. For shadows? Yeah. yeah, yeah, pulling shadows up on it. Oh, hello. Yeah. It takes us. Yeah. Uh, where were we? One, but not on that. What but was our point there? Oh, yeah, for the shadows. Yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe I won't go into it that much, who cares? Okay. Sorry? Oh, well, I was about to ask you. Okay, yeah. So, well, what do you mean by the stills? Well, because I think Canon's already written off the um, EOS series for video, basically. Right. They, uh, they seem to be... think they lost the battle, so they're going to ignore it? Yeah, I think so. Or just push people up to the cinema series. But no, for stills, I have always found, for the last little while, that they're lagging seriously behind um, Sony specifically, um, who's making Nikon sensors. You can push the shadows on those things forever. I started to think that Sony is pushing stuff out so fast... I think they know that they're cannibalizing themselves a little bit. Like the A7 oh, they absolutely coming are. out yeah. is the best example, right? Mm-hmm. And I think they've decided to just be so aggra- like over-aggressive so that it doesn't matter if they cut themselves while they're doing it. Yeah. Like they may bleed a little, mm-hmm. but they're going to kill, like, kill everyone else around them if they can. Exactly. I think yeah. it's just they're not concerned about the traditional release cycles and what they did with the FS7 compared to the uh, yeah. f um, to the uh, F5, yeah, they killed their professional camera yeah. series, um, so. which irritated a few pro shooters. But now there's probably going to be ten times as many FS7 shooters as there were going to be F5. When I looked around the show floor, one thing that was interesting is seeing what everybody was using as a demo camera. Mm-hmm. And if it wasn't a red, it was an A7S a lot yeah. of the time. That's what I found to be the most common sample camera yeah, to sh- like show how the sta- the gimbals worked or mon- or monitors worked. Or so, well, and I, I talked to Dave Dugdale about this earlier, but even looking at what most people there are industry professionals, what they're using when they're walking around shooting their little videos, uh, two years ago when I was there, it was all Canon DSLRs, yeah. pretty much exclusively. This year, A7S's, mm-hmm. uh, just covering the floor with people doing their own little... It would have been so fun if there was a Mark II there. <laughs> like it just, yeah. That would have made my event. But um, no, there wasn't. Uh, what what else was there? I'm going to go back to my list. We had the Red Dragon weapon. It, it's do another. You pay attention to red. I do, just because um, you never know when I'm going to do a job where one's going to be involved, and I, I think it looks like a lovely camera. I still I'm sure it is every time I see, and it's probably a lot of Red's footage and stuff like that because I've seen it processed really well. But I find Red's always look very clinical to me. Mm. Um, you know, even and I think that can be an attribute. Like I think it's the perfect camera for House of Cards. It's right. absolutely perfect, but it doesn't feel organic and natural in the same way that Alexa footage or you know even really well graded S log or Canon C log footage can, mm-hmm. uh, which is what's always kind of kept me away from just renting a red for a day project or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, that said, uh, you know the dragon was used for um, Gone Girl. Which looked beautiful, looked very amazing. Nice. Yeah, beautiful, yeah. totally natural. Gone Girl's production really drives me in a lot of ways. Like the, the, the they pushed the fact that it was done on Premiere, and that yeah. might be the biggest influencing thing. Like, yeah. well, 
I guess it's time to move to Premiere because that movie was should, like, beautiful. Really what we Fantastic. should all be doing is what David Fincher does. Exactly, he should yeah. just stand up and say, Fincher, filmmakers, yeah. this is what we do now, and we just do that. And like for context, my I don't get to shoot with big cameras. Like right. I I have the 5D Mark III, mm-hmm. and that's that's what we use for basically everything because it's a great crossover camera. And I've, I've rented the FS700 or yeah. FS7 from you and used the a7s mm-hmm. but i as a stills shooter first that's what our business is based on yeah i it's always secondary to to get video stuff so i'm looking at a lot of the stuff if it's primarily a video camera i don't have a lot of time to spend with it yeah it, well it just doesn't make sense for what you're doing and honestly that's what's kind of frustrating about nab is you know it's the video show mm-hmm. but it's the pro divisions game so we're not going to hear about yeah that a7s mark ii which if it was announced would be one of it would probably be talked about every bit as much about as the black magics and new reds and stuff like that but uh they want to keep the pro pro people in the pro world i think to a degree uh back to the list back to the list oh small hd that was awesome that was a really yeah. exciting surprise okay if we're gonna do picks this week like yeah did the show thing hey I'll, I'll say my pick of the show was small hd's five inch monitor mm-hmm. which is really a nice tiny piece of hardware it takes canon batteries on the back it's the size of an iphone Basically, but, but it, I, well, initially I thought they were clamps for yeah, iPhones when I was walking like. by the booth. Really sharp images, like extremely dense pixels. Mm-hmm. Um, that it, it makes it almost feel like a bigger monitor than it is because it's so clear when you're up close to it. You can see so much more. I have the small HD DP6, which yeah. is a six-inch HD display, and it does not look this good. No. It's, well, and it's nice, too, more and more when I'm working with cameras that shoot log, there's a lot of image adjustments on them. I don't know if it'll actually take a lot and let you it does. preview. It will? Oh, yeah, so if oh. you play with the interface, I guess you didn't get to play with no, the interface. No, I didn't interface. get to, no. If you move your thumb left and right, it switches between, I think they call them pages, mm-hmm. and each one will have some whatever you want on it. So, you know, the first one might just be uh, the the raw flat image and you flick to the right and now you've got uh, a LUT showing like a pre-grade with peaking turned on and a crosshair in the middle and then your third page has a different LUT and a different color peaking or whatever but like anything you have you can stack them and then flip between I'm going to go back to that booth tomorrow yeah that sounds uh, yeah Yeah, really really good that's exactly what I want to know the only weird thing is you think it's a touch screen when you yeah. put your hand on it, but then it's not. Well, you just like if this screen is this vivid, you must it, right, yeah. it must be a mobile device. Yeah. They also have a EVF mount for it, so yeah. that basically it's like a side mounted EVF, which is it's really interesting idea. It's a prism, so you're just looking into a mirror at the monitor. Yeah. It doesn't. I don't feel like they quite pull it off. There's something about the angles that don't feel like a true EVF. Like, you can tell you're not looking directly at the screen. I almost feel like different screens are optimized for either viewing at a distance or with a loop because Zacuto's Gratical system, which is in the same kind of thing, it's a flip-up loop system, I wasn't really that impressed by the display, but the when you used it as a viewfinder, it was fantastic. It felt much better than the... Uh, oh, and Zacuto had a new thing, too. Did you look through it? I didn't get a chance to. You should tomorrow. The ball... They have a new smaller EVF. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. I'll check that out. See, see, two days in, and I'm still way behind on catching up with stuff. Well, I'm trying to catch you up now, but yeah, small yeah. HD. That's that's the pick, and it's like six hundred dollars, I think. And with the yeah. whole AVF package and everything, I think it was just a bit over a thousand. Yeah, really nice. Yeah, my I mean, I do think my pick would be that 3DR drone that really surprised me. But mm. I'm gonna have like a tentative pick. I'm very. This is a weird one, but I played with JVC's LS300 a little bit. Um, JVC's done nothing for like four years. Oh, yeah, JVC. I forgot. Yeah, they, but they exist. even existed. I saw their booth, but I I, I shot time. the first season and a half of Camera Store TV on JVC because mm-hmm. I loved... They still, I think, have some of the best color science in terms of skin tones, like it, beautiful images, and completely outdated like 80s technology. Uh, mm-hmm. behind that uh, but so they brought out a Super 35 camera with a Micro Four Thirds mount um, and it looks ergonomically terrible, it's like one of their small handy cams with the big lens strapped to the front uh, but then they were showing images from it and I thought they looked really fantastic um, so I went and talked to the guy who shot it, was there at the booth and was just like, hey, how'd you process them? and he said, this is out of camera so um, I find that really because I do get the odd job where crazy fast turnaround is the most important thing. Um, and with those cameras, to get the most out of them, I always still shoot log and I process the image. Yeah. Uh, and with this camera, it, it takes a lot of time. Um, this has that big sensor look, but beautiful images. So this is why it's. Ta- I want to shoot with it. I have a demo unit getting sent out to me. But, it's called? Uh, it's a JVC LS300, which is great because it's a camera without an X in its name, which makes me really happy because that's the digit on everything that comes out this year. Um, but yeah, it, it takes a ton of lenses, and I think it might be my when I need a quick picture very quickly uh, might be my go-to because I'm just looking forward to getting JVC color and skin tones again. I miss those. I have one more thing to add uh, that was a bit of a theme but didn't seem important to anybody Mm -hmm. (laughs) is uh, HDR television sets. Yeah. I saw everybody had them Mm -hmm. but I didn't see anybody crowded around amazed by it. I didn't. And as a person that really likes my dynamic range in in an image yeah, I, w- I was not very impressed. I don't know if I just wasn't looking at it with the right eyes. The idea I got is it was in the wrong hall, because that's something colorists will be using quite a bit, is what yeah. I heard. So if you go to... Um, that, would you, that would completely make sense. But I believe this is going to be consumer. No, it's not going to be consumer. That's, no, because I Because at to, home, I would love it. Yeah. yeah, I can totally see that use for like when you're sitting when you're two t- inches away and you just need it to show you everything. Yeah, because most of like if you've ever used your television as a monitor, um, say editing photos or something like that, TVs are specifically designed to throw away all the highlight and shadow info. So it's basically like a big computer monitor and a TV form factor. Uh, where it makes a lot of sense and I hadn't even thought about it initially is uh, have you been to a uh, studio for a colorist before? No, I haven't been there. So the, the way it's typically set up is yeah, at the back you've got somebody running Resolve or SpeedGrade or whatever and then a big client monitor uh, where the director or um, the DP sits there and dictates exactly how it's going to look and that is the perfect format for these 
Okay, that, type of that display makes sense. It must have because it's, a, it's a big room. panel, unlike a computer monitor, where you can just sit there for because you're in that room for an entire day okay. staring at a screen makes perfect sense. Okay, then I should cut all this out because I just sound dumb. Because it, yes, I, you can you can see a difference, but there is nothing appealing about it. So no, but what's really what I really like seeing is they always have like a couple generations earlier than consumer TVs for looking for the reference displays, looking at things like the blacks. Mm-hmm. The blacks in all the reference monitors in those dark rooms that you can walk into, like Sony had one. And, yeah. Um, wow. Like that is yeah. what a TV should look like. It's so cool. it, it is going to trickle down, I think. Yeah. Um, people, 709 is so outdated. Your regular displays, um, dynamic range, I mm-hmm. think. It, it'll be great when we see that because it is the one thing when I throw a Blu-ray in, I'm like, I'm probably missing quite a bit of detail in the shadows right now that would have been there at the movie theater. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, yeah, it was a fun talk. It was, it was an interesting year. I, I, I'm still. I spent the whole show looking for an overarching theme that I could say. This year's NAB was about, and I, I didn't find it. Was one. about a mishmash hodgepodge. It was about things about. getting uh, slightly better than yeah. they were. <laughs> sure. And uh, you'll you'll have something for people to watch probably too. You can uh, be found at yeah. I'll, YouTube I'll have on my YouTube channel, the Camera Store TV. I'll have a uh, I did a talk a little chat with Dave Dugdale, and I'm gonna lock myself in my hotel and do a talking to the camera thing about what I thought. But uh, it's gonna be a lot of the stuff that we talked about in much less detailed, punchier phrasing. Yeah. So cool. Um, uh, check it out on the channel. Yeah, and really, if you haven't watched Jordan's stuff, it's very useful camera reviews. Thank you. And Uh, and a lot of the stuff we talked about, I was talking with people about getting early, so you'll be able to see it in action on the channel. Yeah, a lot of the time you're the first person, you're the first channel to have. Yeah, like the Panasonic's, uh, yeah, better aim mode. So, yep. If you want to follow me, go to Twitter, maybe. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter, too, at TCSTVJordan. And I'm Stallman on Twitter. You're Stallman everything. Yeah, Stallman all over the place. Thanks for joining us. Yes, thanks for having me. Hope you enjoyed it.